Welcome to episode six of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, Mill Media Group. Mill Media Group is a proven web design and digital media agency specializing in supporting organizations focusing on the military population. Find out more about them at millmediagroup.com. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. And thank you for the response to the show. We're getting a lot of great feedback. If you want to give us more feedback, rate and review the show on your podcast player of choice. We'd also like you to join us on our Facebook group, moderated by fellow combat veteran D. James. You can find the group on the show notes or searching Seeking the Military Suicide Solution on Facebook. I'm excited to bring today's guest on the show because I think it demonstrates the importance of this issue at the highest national level. Shauna, what can you tell us about today's guest? Yes, so Joe Cinelli is the executive director at AMVET's national headquarters, but behind his public role is a man who's a servant leader. Our first conversation could have gone on for hours. Joe is a Marine who served as a combat correspondent with several back-to-back deployments. Joe knows the pain of suicide loss all too well. He's sustained multiple losses, including eight Marines that he served with in Iraq and Afghanistan, and his mother, who died by suicide 10 years ago, as well as many others in the vast network of veterans that he serves in his role at AMVETS. Joe and his team have taken the late-night calls from veterans in crisis. They're doing in-the-trenches work to keep their brothers and sisters in the fight. Joe has a perspective that's uniquely valuable. And it's such an honor to host him on the podcast today. Yeah, I agree. Um, Joe is definitely outspoken about the need for this. Um, and it's really great. And, and AMVETS is not the only one of the big six that is doing this. Um, hopefully to have more conversations to come. Uh, but glad to be able to have a, a different voice, a unique voice on the show. So we're going to get into the conversation and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. really appreciate the, the role that AMVETS is playing uh, in the, the veteran service organization space to address the, the suicide epidemic, not just in veterans, but their families and things like that. So I'm interested to hear from your point of view, what you see is actually working when it comes to preventing suicide in our population. <laughs> well, well Dwayne, I, I really appreciate you having me on such an important conversation and suicide prevention, the, the addressing the mental health crisis, not just among veterans, but you know, really generally in society at this point is our top priority. And we think one of the, the biggest needs right off the bat is having a national conversation about this. So, you know, uh, chance to get on here with you and talk about this is really important. Um, you know, the VA does have quality mental health care. Um, and we do see, you know, pretty good results with what they're providing. Um, but we know they can't do it alone. But, uh, you know, what's, what is working out there that we see is a lot of this alternative therapy. But we're seeing what, what happens at the localist levels is what's most effective. Um, you know, whether it's yoga in a, in AMVETS or one of the other veterans posts or at, at the hospitals or just at someone's yoga clinic. Um, and I'm just using yoga as one one example of many. Um, we see these warrior retreats um, showing tremendous promise. Uh, unfortunately, they're not getting enough 
opportunity yet to be able to prove themselves. You know, everything has to be evidence-based. Um, and we agree that things need to be able to be proven, but they have to be given the opportunity to prove themselves. Um, and, you know, a lot of times that requires funding. It requires observation by, you know, the, the so-called experts out there, things like that. Um, you know, there's great warrior retreats out there like Save a Warrior and Boulder Crest and Camp Hope. Um, and, you know, it's, I mentioned Camp Hope, uh, which started in Missouri. Um, you know, that's a very different take on the way some of the other uh, therapies are out there. It's all peer-to-peer. And we believe peer-to-peer is probably the most effective way to address this. And so we've launched a training program that we built. Um, it's on our website, and we're, we have a pretty aggressive goal of having 10,000 of our members in the next few months trained um, on this program. This is really t- how to identify what's happening, how to um, mitigate the risks and the Identify when triggers are happening and how to connect their their fellow veterans with with the resources that they need. You have the stories pretty commonly uh, told to us about a veteran who is suicidal or in serious crisis, and they they stop into a post. Um, sometimes it's supposed to be their one last stop. Is, is I'm going to go in and have have a couple beers and then go home and kill myself. And they go in there and they end up talking to their fellow veterans and find. You know, f- find something that they didn't realize that they're that they're not alone. That there are other people out there who care about them. That there is there is help. Uh, unfortunately, far too many don't get that. And sometimes we know people do exactly that. They go into a post or somewhere else at some other type of community space, and they don't find what they need. Or those that they're in there interacting with don't recognize w- what's happening, and they do end up killing themselves. You know, and that's, uh, I absolutely, uh, I as a mental health professional, but I'm sort of a super peer, right? I was a, a, a vet and then I became a clinical mental health counselor. There's not enough of us in the field to provide that clinical sort of uh, connection. Um, and, and I agree, there is a gap between the clinicians and then, you know, maybe what's working on the ground. Uh, but you're talking about the the heel training, right? That was clinically informed. I mean, like, you know, clinicians paired with AMVETS to put that together. That's correct. And we do have um, we do have clinicians on staff here on, on AMVETS, with AMVETS now at our national headquarters. Um, and they work with a lot of other agencies out there and built this training program. It's an online training module. It takes about 20 minutes. It's actually pretty difficult. Um, when we first launched it, you know, obviously this has been a, a big part of my life for a long time. So I decided I wanted to test the test and I decided to cruise through it, kind of just skip through the, the different periods of instruction and just go right to the uh, individual quizzes and the final test. And I failed it, um, which I thought was a good sign that this is, this program really brings something new to the table. Um, and we're also going out and we are doing training now. We'll be launching a, a nationwide training uh, effort next year where we're doing in-person training um, throughout the country, wherever veterans go. We're going to start with our largest posts, um, but we'll be going. There's other uh, other VSOs have asked us to come in and conduct that training as well. We don't care who it is or where, who's getting credit for it, anything like that, as long as they're saving lives, those people that you know our staff is training. 
And and that's great. You know, and this is one of those things I actually was having a conversation with somebody the other day and, and we're doing some community-based work here in, in El Paso County and Colorado Springs. Um, and, and the discussion was about, you know, who has the mandate? Do, does this organization have the mandate to take this forward? And my point is, well, it's laying on the ground. So somebody has got to pick up the ball and run with it. Right. And I think that's one thing. And, and I've noticed over the last several years that AMVETS has really tried to do is that this ball has been surprisingly, it's been sitting on the, the the ground for so long that you picked it up and run with it. And like you said, this is something that you have been dealing with for quite a while. So that's what works. The peer support is what works. But what are you seeing that isn't working? That maybe some of the things that people think what I'm doing is effective, but it doesn't seem to be working. Sure. Well, you can start with, with dollar signs, right? We have $9 billion has been spent by the VA um, year after year. Um, and in the last 10 years, we've lost more veterans of suicide than we lost in all of Vietnam. Um, we're, we're trying to do the same thing over and over again. And, you know, again, back to the, the beginning of um, in our conversation here, there are things that are working in the VA, but it's hard to have that have any impact if you have a large number of veterans who or some of the veterans who are in most need uh, of treatment, of counseling, things like that, they're not going to the VA. Um, there's different reasons, um, although it's hard for us to decipher for sure because the VA says they don't have certain data. Like they don't know how many of, we know we'll use this 20 a day number of the 20 veterans who die, statistically speaking, per day, 16 of them are not currently receiving treatment from the VA. We don't know how many of those 16 went to the VA, didn't like what they experienced, didn't didn't go back, or how many just don't have access to it um, because of either their local VA is very busy or because their local VA isn't all that local. Um, you know, a lot of veterans who are experiencing mental health um, you know, issues, they're unable to leave their house, or maybe they, they don't feel comfortable to drive, things like that. We don't really know why they're not going to VA, um, but we know they're not getting there, or they have they don't trust the VA, maybe they don't trust the government. Um, you know, there's been a lot of reasons out there, well-publicized reasons of why people don't trust the VA. So the bottom line is, expecting the VA to be the catch-all and the, the one lone entity responsible for saving these veterans, for providing these veterans what they need is, is unrealistic and it's simply not working. So we spend billions and billions of dollars a year and the suicide rate is going up, not down. Spending is going up, suicide, but the suicide rate is not going down. Um, we're not getting a return for our investment as taxpayers. Um, you know, it's not my job to, to try to look out for the taxpayer here, but you know, that's, that, that's the reality here is that we're not getting what we need from that. Uh, you know, that's why we're very supportive of efforts um, in, in Congress to be able to allow the VA to provide resources to local entities, whether that's the alternative therapy, uh, whether it's peer-to-peer -peer support, whether it's local clinical help, whatever it is, we want to push that locally. The VA needs community partners. We all do. We realize that. Um, we also don't think what the Department of Defense is doing is working. Um, really, that the problem starts way back in the Department of Defense. And I mean, in the very beginning, I don't think they're doing the appropriate or, or enough and enough screening uh, when people are coming into the military, provide the type of um, transition assistance that they need. And we've addressed 
a ton. And back during the Obama administration, they poured a ton of money to improve the transition um, from from the military back into civilian life or into veterans life. And, you know, there's a ton of resources out there. But in, in reality, veterans or service members are still sprinting through that process to get out. Um, the Department of Defense needs to own this issue. And now we know there's a lot of active duty military uh, who, who are killing themselves. So clearly they're failing. The Department of Defense is failing uh, you know, our men and women in uniform in that way. And when they get out, it becomes a VA's problem instantly. And you know, that's I don't care what's fair or not. It's not fair, but it's not right. And it's not going to it's not going to address this this crisis. After the break, Joe and I talk about the importance of collaboration between government agencies, the medical and mental health community and organizations like AMVETS supporting the military population nationally. I'm Melissa Mosier. I'm a local Army spouse, daughter, sister, and a proud team member of Mill Media. I'm here at our headquarters at the Great Fort Head, Texas. Mill Media is a military-affiliated team that wants to serve you the way that you served our country, with mostly military retirees, veterans, and families as our staff. We understand the military mindset. Mill Media is the one place that prioritizes your goals above all else, which you will see from our incredible customer service. With over 25 years of experience, we work with everyone from startups, small businesses, entrepreneurs, and nonprofits. Mill Media Group is the digital division of Top Search Business Solution that specializes as a web design and digital marketing platform. So visit our website today for a free website analysis so that you can sit back, relax, and let us give you the perfect online presence. To hear more about what Mill Media is doing and will continue to do, call me today at 254-554-0974 or visit our website. That's millmediagroup.com. So call me whenever you're ready. You know, this is a conversation I've had with people that um, in the community, you know, and obviously maybe this was much more on social media, but, you know, it's either the DOD's problem or it's the VA's problem, right? They need to fix it. And that third stool, like you said, community partners, people in the community don't even think that it's their responsibility, right? You know, that's, uh, I don't put out fires. That's a fire department's job. Well, I do what I can to prevent fires so that I don't have to call the fire department, but people don't consider that whenever we talk about suicide, it's the DOD's problem or the VA's problem. It's America's problem. It, right. everybody, everybody needs to chip in on this thing. It's the only way we're going to come solving it. So, and, and that's, uh, you know, the, the classic definition of insanity, right? Keep trying the same thing over and over again, um, expecting different results. And I often say, I, as a mental health provider, we, com- this community, the mental health community doesn't have the solution because if we did, the problem would be solved. Um, and so that's one of the issues is what's not working. I'm not saying any more than you're saying is that clinical interventions don't work. They do for the people they work with. Uh, and then these other things, but what gaps are there? I mean, you're, you're having this conversation at the national level. We, we started talking a little bit before about the, the drumbeat that AMVETS is trying to, to hit, but what else is needed? What gaps are there to, um, uh, that we need to fill? Um, you know, I think we need broader collaboration um, within the government and from the government within the uh, medical community and with the nonprofit community or the, you know, 
non-governmental agencies. Um, President Trump last year signed an executive order um, called the Prevents that directs all of his cabinet members to work together on this. Um, very supportive of that, that concept. We need to get the brightest minds in this country working on this issue. And if you look at maybe the Department of Energy, not an entity that we've engaged with in the past for this crisis, who can really analyze what things are happening and figure out and we think they can figure out some new solutions. You know, this is all about thinking out of the box and, and looking at new ways to address this. You can go to Department of Commerce. Department of Commerce has more data than anybody else in the United States. We're all always talking about the lack of data to be able to use as we plan, things like that. Um, you know, clearly, um, HUD and HHS, um, you know, they have a ton of, ton of information. A ton of resources, uh, expertise at, at their fingertips, and you know to bring them all together in, in one way. I think could be very important. Um, but with with the health industry, with um, the non governmental agencies, um, you know they they're engaged in silos right now, and they basically like, what can you do? It's it's not always about what can you do. It's how can we work together. Um, I think we're gonna we're gonna get there, but that's that's a, a big part of our message here of what we're missing right now. That there's a lot of resources that are stronger if they're used together. You know that's interesting, and you you talk about that. Obviously, we all talk about these silos and, and turf battles and stuff like that. Um, but it wasn't like that when we were in the military, right? I was in logistics for 22 years, right? So I definitely know that the behind the scenes stuff didn't get the bullets and the guns to the guys in front, right? So, you know, you didn't just rely as an infantryman um, or as a, a combat medic, you didn't just rely on other combat medics or other infantrymen, you built a team. I mean, ultimately, that's what the special forces is, is built around is this finding people who are very skilled in one particular area and putting them together but it doesn't seem to that doesn't seem to translate to post military life for veterans organizations. That's a great example of what we need to learn from. No, that's I haven't thought about that way before. But you're right. That's uh, hopefully breaking it down in a way that your listeners, but you know, just as importantly, uh, our, our government officials can understand. It's great. You know, so in in those are I see the same gaps, right? How how why are we not in the same room talking about the same thing? Um, everybody doing connectivity. Let's get in the room and and again, this analogy that listeners are hearing this over and over again. But we're all digging holes, but nobody is telling us where to dig or how to dig or or you know at what depth or what direction, right? So this coordination piece, we're trying all of this stuff. Um, what kind of action, because this is the thing, right? You know, the 20 a day, 22 a day, 17 a day pushups, you know, we're, we're beyond the awareness point. We know about the problem. How do we move beyond awareness to actually taking action? What can listeners actually do when it comes to suicide prevention? It depends on their, their level of, uh, of desire to participate. Um, you know, when we were encouraging everyone to, to, you know, take the training that we have offered out there, or if there's others um, who are offering the training, but to be able to find out what you individually can do, uh, first and foremost, figure out how you can identify um, things. And it's, it's not as simple as these little um, business cards that, you know, the, the VA passes out of, you know, if people are giving away their things or if they're talking about suicide, it's a lot of people who don't have those really outward, um, highly visible things. Um, but then it's not just knowing that as well. It's, it's learning how to help them mitigate the, the risks. Uh, you know, firearms, a, a big deal. Um, you know, when we look at the co- or the, the means by which most veterans are taking their lives, it's firearms. Um, we are not advocating for taking away anyone's firearms. 
Um, we know if a veteran feels that he or she may lose their firearms because they went and got self-identified that they needed some help, they're probably not going to to do that. You know, so to understand that issue and understand the right way to talk with people about that, how to ensure that they really know that you're there for them or that there are others who are there for them. Um, and I think the other thing here is to continue to push your lawmakers into understanding we can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect different different outcomes and to pressure them to make sure they know that you expect them to engage with um, those who are trying to find outside the box ideas here, try to um, leverage best practices um, that maybe have worked in other things. We talked a few times now about these community partners, building these community partners. That's how our government addressed veterans homelessness with a lot of success with the last presidential administration. They put grants out to local levels and we saw homeless numbers drop dramatically. It worked. Um, and we think that kind of engagement at the local levels. Uh, so that's, that's stuff that we want. We need everybody to be pushing their lawmakers on, whether it's informing them or just encouraging them. You know, it's, it's risky. And we have a lot of lawmakers who are afraid of taking that risk of, you know, putting several million dollars, you know, into a program that might not work. And we acknowledge it might not work, but we also acknowledge that what we're doing now isn't working. You know, I often use the the veteran homelessness homelessness example uh, as well. Um, we have I have a partner here in my community who is one of the SSVF grant recipients. Um, and and again, it's one of those things is as veterans go, so go our nation. If we can figure out how to solve veteran homelessness in this very identifiable small group and what interventions will get them off the streets, we can then apply that to the national issue or the the community based issue. Same thing with suicide is if we can figure out how to engage this particular um, demographic, which is representative um, across socioeconomic factors and geographic factors, but if we can figure out how to address suicide in this population, we can then take those same techniques and apply it to the nation at large. You're absolutely right. And that was a conversation I had with the White House staff just yesterday. They're, of course, they're responsible for the entire country, not just the veterans population. We know the veterans population is suffering a particularly uh, high suicide rate, but really the entire country is facing this suicide epidemic. Um, and when you're not breaking down veterans or non-veterans, we're talking about a suicide in the United States every 15 minutes. I mean, a you know a huge number. Um, but veterans, you know, have been leading from the front forever and you know finding ways to help the rest of the country and that's what we can all do here by helping address us at the veterans level no i i absolutely agree um i'm definitely going to make sure that the the heal training um the your website and you have a great instructional video that i see here i'm going to make sure that that's in the show notes and uh, and i really appreciate you coming on the show today you know thank you Dwayne. this has been great appreciate appreciate everything you're doing uh you know your, your, uh, you know, everything, your, your outreach, especially out there on Twitter, you know, we hear through your uh, podcast and your blogs really making a difference. We're, we're very grateful for you. Appreciate it. You know, I really enjoyed that conversation with Joe. I think he had a lot of good points. I did too. You know, he made the comment that a number of programs and retreats that are highly impactful may not get the support they deserve because we're so focused on evidence-based treatments. 
As a psychologist who's been a researcher, it's a balance, I suppose. On the one hand, we need to guard against you know wildly irresponsible, damaging interventions or things that are a waste of time and money. But sometimes I wonder if we've gone too far in terms of resourcing only the things that have research backing. Specifically, I'm thinking about being in a number of sacred circles of warriors, reunions that they've pulled together with little to no outside funding. And during these weekends, I've honestly witnessed more transformative change than in most of the other settings I've worked with. I had uh, one particular reunion with about two dozen Marines, and I asked for emergency funding from a large foundation that gives money out for veterans. And they said, nope, it doesn't have the research backing, so no funding for this. And we did it anyway. And I wanted to read some feedback that I got from one of the Marines after that weekend, because it makes the point rather than me just saying it, I wanted to read some excerpts from the letter he sent. Hello, ladies. I wouldn't admit it in front of those other goofballs, but I needed that. That reunion could not have come at a better time. The therapy you provided was far more successful than any of the other methods I've experienced. I couldn't believe how not forced that felt. It was not in an office or any other setting that feels not therapeutic and sterile. There's something to be said for how beneficial it is to place your subjects in a safe environment they're comfortable with. I think counseling and grief programs should be conducted for units, groups that already know each other. There's an unbreakable bond. We can skip the hours and days of breaking down individual barriers to establish a working comfort level. The location was perfect, woodsy, quiet, hard to find, secure. To close, I was completely blown away by how well-coordinated, organic, and therapeutic this was. The model of therapy that you are utilizing should be given a hard look by other organizations with the same goal. I can't express how much I needed that in my life from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. And we didn't ask for that letter. It was probably twice that long. I thought it was um, super insightful and really funny, actually. Um, but it makes the point that some of the most impactful things that we're doing are precisely the things that are so sacred that we're just not going to be able to bring, you know, questionnaires and surveys into them. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on that as well, Dwayne, because I think Joe makes such an important point here. No, I agree. And, and definitely um, the, the, the funding is around PTSD and TBI, right? You know, that's where the money is. And so that's where we design the research around, right? We have the medical model of mental health when it comes to, we have evidence base for um, depression and substance abuse, of course, and TBI and PTSD. But what about that lack of purpose and meaning? That's much more existential. Uh, Moral injury is now emerging in in developing some evidence, but that's exactly right. And I think this is one of the challenges that we've had is separating the medical community or the mental health community that needs to be quantifiable and measurable to when the apple falls from the tree, I can tell it's gravity. Mm -hmm. Right. And when enough Marines or warriors or soldiers or airmen say, this was profoundly impactful, more than anything I've ever done, then the foundation should be listening to them. They ought to have a vote and a voice, I think, in terms of what gets funded. Um, But it is a balance. You know, we don't want to do something that's wildly irresponsible. So there needs to be some oversight and some structure. But I just think sometimes we've erred on the side of reifying research and evidence-based practice. The other thing that uh, Joe commented on was the perception that firearms will be taken away as a barrier to starting treatment. And this is an obstacle to care for so many veterans. So a few years ago, I was talking with a Marine named Brian Vargas, and I asked him this question. 
What do you think veterans really think when clinicians like me who have not served in the military ask veterans about their firearms? And he said, well, I know what I think, and I can find out what other veterans think if you want. So at the time, Brian was working toward a degree in social work at Berkeley, and he was using tools like SurveyMonkey. So he pulled together a poll and sent it out to the veteran community. And about a week later, he returned with the results. It was responses from about 70 veterans enrolled at three different local colleges out here in California. It was one veteran asking other veterans to share what they really think. So here's what we learned. When Brian asked them if they would tell a new clinician the truth about owning firearms, over half said probably not or definitely not. Moreover, over half said that they would probably drop out of treatment if a clinician they did not know well were to ask them if they own a firearm. So I wonder if this sounds familiar to any of the veterans or clinicians who are listening to this podcast today. You know, despite our good intentions, what if asking questions about firearm ownership what if the, the questions we're asking about firearm ownership are actually backfiring, leading veterans to avoid seeking help in the first place? What if our questions and our approach are a major barrier to many veterans who would otherwise engage in care? These are the thoughts that have led me to develop trainings and talks about the psychology of approaching this conversation in a respectful, strategic way. In the show notes for this episode, we'll post a link to a free-to-access television program that I did, which hosted a refreshingly honest conversation about firearms. You know, I always say that a veteran doesn't need much reason to avoid therapy. So any reason is a good yeah. reason. Yeah, um, they're scanning this, for a reason to never right. come back. And not to yep. make light of this, but this is a very accurate reason to avoid getting care. Um, this is, uh, and, and I, I describe it as a fear of being taken, something taken away, not just the guns, but here at, at Fort Carson and Peterson Air Force Base, a fear of their um, security clearance being taken away. But it's this fear of something being taken away from me and not exploring that fear not verifying whether that's true or not can keep somebody from getting the help they need. Yeah, it's a loaded conversation and it requires a thoughtful strategic approach rather than just diving into, you know, are you a risk for suicide and do you own firearms? We really need to have a strategic humble approach to how we ask these questions in the first place. No, I agree. I think that having um learning how to have the conversations we're able to sit with uncomfortable conversations in other spaces, but when it comes to these very maybe politically charged or maybe emotionally charged situations, it's hard to do that. Right, right. Yep. This is, yeah, it brings in a lot of emotional content. And so it's really just very tricky, but there are ways to have a conversation. So that's why I wanted to post that show because there's a couple specific examples I give in the last segment about how we can talk about this respectfully. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and as we've been saying, this is a conversation we're going to have to have. We can't talk about suicide in the military-affiliated population without talking about firearms. It simply cannot happen uh, simply because of the, the number of deaths by suicide. So I really appreciate everybody taking the time to listen to the show. Make sure to check out the show notes at VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash STMSS06. We can get the links to the things we talked about in this episode, as well as on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions or let us know what you thought about this show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James by searching Seeking the Military Suicide Solution on Facebook. While you're at it, check out our sponsors, Mill Media Group. 
They're a web design and digital media agency with over 25 years of experience in supporting service members, veterans, and their families. They specialize in working with startups, small businesses, entrepreneurs, nonprofits, and city and state and local governments. As a veteran-owned business, they're uniquely qualified to work with those who want to reach an audience in the military and veteran community. If you have a dream or a vision, they can help bring it to life and get you in front of your audience. You can contact them at 254-554-0974 or find them online at millmediagroup.com. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution. And make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.